out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastor and the C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter, guitarist Paul Handyside, who was once fronting Hurrah, all the way from, I do believe, Newcastle, and is now a prolific solo artist who has a new album out at the end of May 2021, titled Loveless Town. I have listened to it. It is a classic. It's available from Bandcamp, um, and I think I believe there's a CD as well. But he does have a very good band, which he also includes, interestingly enough, um, Catherine Tuckell's brother, Rob Tuckell, who also produced, engineered and mixed it. So there you go. And also David um, Porthouse, who's on double bass. But anyway, look, enough of that. After several minutes of casual chat with Paul, as you do in the world that is showbiz, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. We'd like to start somewhere. Anyway, hurrah. They were there from the 80s to the very beginning of the 90s. But uh, you'll find out more about that as the uh, interview goes on. Anyway, Paul, it's over to you. It depends how far back you want to go, because there are like moments and there are tiny moments, like going back to when you were a kid and stuff. So trying to trying to think of something. I mean, um, when I was kind of, I think, 12, um, I suddenly got into the Beatles um, and that was it. Um, I, I kind of ignored everything else that was uh, contemporary at the time, like you were saying about um, Bowie and Glitter and all of that stuff. That was going on, but my 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 uh, my head was drawn to towards the sixties, actually, wow. um, with the Beatles and um, and obs- obsessively with the Beatles and the Stones and um, Hendrix and Dylan and stuff. So um, yeah, so I'd say for my kind of 10 to 17 uh, years were were basically back in the 60s and then punk hit and then then that took over so so that's basically right um, that was very yeah. definite wasn't it you didn't you didn't particularly go for glam and you didn't have any older brothers or sisters who were into things like prog rock or motown no um, single child and had um, very few kind of musical influences really um but I can specifically remember we used to camp out in the in the back garden, me and the the local lads, and um, one guy a couple of doors down, um, we all had you know like cassette players, you know little cassette players, and um, he he borrowed uh, the um, the Beatles Blue album, you know the compilation, the Blue One Sixty Seven yes. Seven. He borrowed that from his auntie, and so we had that playing in the tent, and I think I heard Strawberry Fields and stuff. And, and um, that that was it. It was it literally was from that moment. Um, so yes, well, it's interesting because my my older brother, who was seven years older, he was quite into prog. But he he bought two albums quite early on in sort of seventy three, seventy four. One was Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which I thought was mm-hmm. amazing. And then there was Sergeant Pepper, which um, when I look back at it, I realised the Beatles had only just broken up about three years before that. And yeah, and yeah that felt yeah. like a completely different time. And it's exactly like, that's gone. But then, you know, yeah. and, and so no one was really talking about the Beatles that much. But I remember the blue and the red albums because yeah. some, some family friends had those and we'd play them a bit. But it was it was Sergeant Pepper because it hadn't become this iconic album at all. It was just like, oh, that's quite interesting. And I loved there was a couple of songs on it because I was quite young. They they obviously had quite a musical quality, but there was also a track on side two called Good Morning that I was really obsessed with, that track. I just thought it was good. But then there was, a, you know, it was it was kind of, and a bit like the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, there was a track on, the last track on side four called Harmony, which I was like, God, that's just the most beautiful song I've ever heard, you know. Even to this day, I'm still kind of obsessed with it. So were your parents at all musical? Did they have any kind of leaning or any interest um no not at all um nothing nothing from from that i think that my dad um would be playing uh, a lot of kind of Burt Bacharach, frank sinatra um that kind of stuff you know that's what people were into you know kind of 60s 70s was the, you know the crooner sort of thing yeah um but yeah 
But, um, but I, I, th I think um, going back even earlier, and that's why I said, you know, there are moments, I think of my grandparents um, who live around the corner that give me um, their, their dance set, you know, their 45 and their collection of records, which were, you know, EPs, I think seven inch EPs, Frank Sinatra um, doing um, That's Life and stuff like that. Yes. And they gave me, uh, they also had, um, you know, like your reel to reel tape machines, you know, my granddad had one of these, give it to me. And um, about kind of oh, 20 years after that, I just, I, I found the old reel to reel tape machine and I played it. I thought, oh, what's on this, you know? And I played it. And here it's the same, I didn't know what the hell was going on. There was like um, Frank Sinatra's That's Life playing, but um, the voice of this eight-year-old boy singing along with it. And so there, that was my my first uh, bit of recording was me when I was eight, singing That's Life along with Frank Sinatra and recording it, you know. So um, so that was probably my first recording. <laughs> <laughs> Just the well, idea of like an eight-year-old boy singing That's Life, you know, and, and all of that. But um, yeah. Oh, that's a fantastic story. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I think it's the kind of thing and most people do, but they do, maybe forget about it. I would have forgotten about it. I did not come across the the reel to reel and played it because I didn't remember. You know, you don't remember what you did when you were eight. No, I know. I mean, yeah. it's just Action Man and and sort of I don't know Blue Peter and stuff like that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so when did you pick up a guitar? Um, probably um, not long after um, heard the Beatles. So I was probably I don't know twelve, thirteen, and. Uh, because uh, other friends seemed to picking up the guitar and um, being a lot better at it than I was, and uh, I was I was crap, I was rubbish, and um, um, I don't know. It took me took me a long while to I think catch up with the the rest of the cats, you know. And was a late late developer, I think, guitar wise. Um, what made you persist? Yeah, then acoustic guitar, guitar and then. then like, I said, what made, Sorry? You what made you persist playing the guitar if it didn't come that easily? Uh, I, I really don't know. I really don't know. I don't know. What is it that makes you do anything? <laughs> you know, you just do it and, you know, eventually something clicks, I guess. Uh, yes. Well, yeah. it's kind of, I just remember, you know, I never was in a band. I never played an instrument, but I do remember having a go and thinking, God, this is hard. I'll just go and play a record. And I realised that moment, all those moments that happened, I didn't persist and it was like you obviously did feel like yes this is a bad noise but i'm still sticking with it you know it's quite impressive yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean just around that time if, if you're after uh, anecdotes um around that time um i got i've got an electric guitar a very old burns guitar and you know was didn't really have an amplifier it was just you know something to 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 play um but at the time and my dad was in the motor trade and um, a guy who was working for him um, who's from the northeast of England um, said to my dad, oh, yeah, uh, I, I used to be a uh, roadie for, uh, you know, rock musicians and stuff. And um, apparently he was a roadie for Jimi Hendrix. And of course, the connection was that Charles Chandler of yes. the Animals from Newcastle was a Geordie. So, no, you know, the, the road crew were Geordies. Um, and so this guy, um, and my dad knew I was mad on Hendrix. So the guy, so my dad said, oh, my son's a, a big Hendrix fan. And I think I was about 13 or 14. Um, and this guy who, who worked for my dad to try and ingratiate himself said, oh yeah, I've, I've got a couple of his guitars. Um, when uh, Jimmy died, you know, we all uh, got the gear, you know, yes. got a hold of the gear. I don't know if this is legally uh, <laughs> correct that I'm saying this, so so please don't print this. No. I'm just telling you. Uh, and he also had a foot pedal by uh, Jimmy, a volume pedal. And uh, he said, you know, your, your, your son can have this. So my dad brought home this like uh, huge great um, metal thing, you know, made in Colorado, this volume pedal, uh, which wasn't really much use, but anyway, so, uh, uh, I kept that and uh, used to sit in my bedroom with playing Jimi Hendrix, right, well, jamming along with Jimi Hendrix's foot pedal. <laughs> but, um, 
But about 30 years later, um, this guy, uh, obviously realizing the value of such things, wanted it back and uh, he got in touch with my, my dad and um, he was a bit of a dodgy guy, made, made certain threats that uh, if it wasn't returned, um, there would be trouble. So, um, you know, I had no use for it. Yeah, so, um, but I, I was always promised that I would get a loan of one of the, uh, the white strats uh, right. that he had, uh, but I never did. I never did, but um, yeah. So, so. Wow, that's quite that's quite the story, isn't it? That's is, um, <laughs> yes, yeah, Ch yeah. Chaz Chandler. You know, he. I always remember his interviews where he talked about the. I think that's the first time I came across. Was it the Chitlet Circuit? He used to talk about with you know American musicians used to do these kind of gigs in small towns. You know, playing backups for different kind of soul singers. The Chitlet Circuit. I just. Yeah. Him, that was the first time I'd ever come across that term. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the animals must have been massive in Newcastle. The animals. Uh, not, not, I, I, uh, no, because I think they, they must have split up in what, 65, 66, or something like that. So I would have only been five or six. So I, they, they weren't on my radar, but obviously, you know, you, you were aware of the records, you know, you, everybody knew the, the sound of uh, Rising Sun. Yes, well, absolutely. And little Eric. He always tapped along with his tambourine. Yeah. Yes, what a voice. Yeah. And he's still alive, yeah. which is um, incredible. But then, you know, look, 79, Thatcher gets in. You know, there's a kind of a quite a shift, isn't there, into the 80s. And then we have, you know, the, the early 80s was that kind of period where a lot of people from the left of centre politically and, and so, you know, culturally and, and, and everything, you know, there, there's a lot of unemployment at that stage and a lot of the bands I've interviewed, obviously, at, at a certain age, you know, with a lot of unemployment and people going on the Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance schemes, which gave people a one-year grant, really, to do anything they wanted. And at the time, there was no kind of bad stigma to unemployment because, frankly, it felt like the whole world was doomed at then. Though we now look back with golden, you know, with rose-tinted sunglasses and think it was wonderful. But I do remember the early 80s as being really grim and quite depressing. So, um, yeah. So all of, yeah, all, all of Hurrah were on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme for a year, I think oh. in about 83 or something like that. Yes. Yeah. The, the classic, oh, you are the classic band. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> De rigueur, you know, you've got to go to art school, you've got to be on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, you know. Yes. So had you left school, done your, you know, three-year degree in, in art or an apprentice, um, foundation? Oh, uh, no, I, I, uh, I kind of, um, I, uh, what did I do? I stayed on at A-levels for about a month and uh, I didn't like it, so I left and I went to technical college, uh, the local technical college, and did a year of oh, business studies, which was awful, didn't like that. Um, the year after, I decided I wanted I wanted to do art uh, design, so I uh, signed up for a, a design graphics course there. That's where I met Tuff, Tuffy Hughes of Hurrah. Right. He was in the class as well. Um, he was the same age as me, and um, we just uh, got on like a house on fire um, from day one, really. Yes. And, but I was already friends with David Porthouse from Hurrah from school we were school friends so um yeah so so early 80s was or 79 it was art school for a couple of years and um and then i think uh tough went to uh the poly in newcastle and i went to sunderland but we we both just lasted a term and um then started with a band probably so right so we brief, brief, briefly you know went to college you know starting to do gigs around town and stuff so yes well actually you know because it was kind of an interesting period because you'd mentioned punk and then there's that post-punk period and then kind of the world of people like echo and the bunny men and simple minds and you too and then there was kind of by 83 the smiths appeared and that that felt like indie pop or some sort of indie world had sort of really become a bigger thing rather than just being very small but also during that period you had these kind of fantastic gatekeepers didn't you, you had three weekly music magazines every city and town had a venue and um there was fans in writers so they did and john peel obviously god you know so mm. there was a lot of things that did you know give bands that a potential to sort of go from just playing in front of their 
friends and family and anybody else they could emotionally blackmail to watch them to suddenly playing in front of strangers. So when you got the band together, did you have a, a, an idea of where you wanted to go with it? Oh, I think we probably all had different ideas. I mean, um, I think um, me personally, I wanted to, you know, I was, I was always a Beatles fan and I wanted, you know, to do loads of different styles of music and always have done. Taff was um, a real punk. He was, um, he wanted to be the Clash. And Dave was, Dave, Dave was into Motorhead. He, wanted, he was a biker and uh, um, he was a rocker. So we had uh, one rocker, one punk and one uh, kind of hippie or, you know, 60s kid. So, but we, we all kind of like, um, we like the same kind of indie things. We all like people like the go-betweens, Orange Juice. Um, um, yeah, no, I, I don't think there was any great master plan. We just kind of got on really well as mates and um, yeah. Out, <laughs> yes, well, absolutely. But you were the first band to sign for Kitchenware Records, weren't you? Yeah, we, uh, we did our first single, um, for them, and um, yeah, that was the first single on Kitchenware, yeah, which must have been you know, it was quite a nice little bit of kudos, really. That was the your son, that was the sun, a track called The Sun Shines Here, here, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not on TV. Um, yeah. <laughs> did that come together? Did you did you sort of get your sound and vibe together with the band quite quickly? Because you'd only just formed by then, hadn't you? Um, well, no. Um, I think because um, when I met Tuff, he didn't play guitar, and um, um, so he he was learning guitar as as he kind of played with me and Dave, and you know we'd been playing, you know since our teens so um we were just kind of making it up as we were going along as, as as most bands do you know there was no no great effort of getting the sound together i think the sound comes from the um the cheap guitars and gear that you use and the you know the the lack of technical ability in your hands you know that's where the sound came from yes absolutely but then you know you 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 did sort of go th- you know, like a lot of bands, I come from Norwich, we're not, you know, blessed with a huge amount of gigs, um, you know, homegrown bands. We had, you know, the Farmer's Boys, Higgs and Serious Drinking. It wasn't yeah. amazing, was it, really? They were fine, but they weren't really major players, were they? You know, they, whereas, whereas you, you know, obviously from Newcastle, there's an awful lot of good bands from that area. And the same with, you know, I don't know, Cherry Red Records have done, you know, those compilations. There's one on Liverpool and there's one on Manchester. So... You know, there was definitely a kind of a vibe of things moving along quite quickly, you know, during the 80s with, with sort of people sort of forming bands and releasing stuff. And, and so your first couple of years, you did shift through the gears quite quickly because so, you worked with the famous Jimmy Miller, didn't you? Um, yeah, yeah, he was a lovely guy. Um, I, think, um, I think we were due to record with a different producer. Um, who I think had an accident and walked through a a, a, a a glass door or something, had a terrible accident. And um, Jimmy Miller just happened to be in the country. Um, he was due to be producing um, Dexy's Midnight Runners. And um, I think, <laughs> you know, synchronicity and um, um, he, 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 uh, he came and um, produced um, a single, a couple of tracks we did down in down in Oxfordshire, um, nice. but he was a lovely guy. Um, um, but I think he was just very recently out of rehab and just getting back on his feet. I think he'd had a rough kind of few years, but he was a, a, a lovely bloke. And obviously, <laughs> to me, um, you know, I just wanted to ask him about the Stones and <laughs> you know what happened. And you know, he told us the, the the night Brian Jones died that you know uh, Mick and Keith were like you know okay, fair enough, yeah, let's get on record. You know, like you know they weren't they weren't bothered. You know, it was um, it was just kind of matter of fact. Um, but uh, that's the only thing I can remember him saying about the Stones. But yeah, that was your Mister Jimmy from the from the song. You know, yes, I know. Well, he's quite a legend, isn't he? Yeah. His CV is quite. Yeah. 
But then you, by, by 85, you'd already got your first album out, which was on, it's still on Kitchenware, because then you signed to Arista, but that, was that via Kitchenware Records? Well, we didn't do our first album. The first album that came out was just a compilation of the singles. That was called Boxed, and that came out in 85 or something, I think. So that was just um, the singles and the B-sides, because uh, we, we didn't have any money to do an album, and uh, Kitchenware were only kind of, you know, we were only recording one single a year. It was, it was, it always felt like, oh, this is just going to end soon because there was no money um, that Kitchenware had to, you know, just throw out an album. And um, I, I think the the last roll of the dice was we were to record an album, uh, which we did up in Edinburgh, and. Um, and then I think they, they, you know, they licensed it to, to Arista. That was right. that was how it came about. Yes, because and because because during that period, what which is kind of you mentioned several bands, Orange Juice and the Go Betweens, because a lot of people often mention, you know, like the Smiths, the June Brides, as being kind of the major indie bands of that period. Did you feel at that point that that you were sort of part of a kind of a wave of music that was kind of um yeah part of a scene at all or were, were you just kind of trying to sort of get on with it within your own furrow uh we were definitely in our own furrow up here and didn't didn't feel part of anything um except that if you know sometimes if we went down to london to play there'd be you know people there who used to go and see all of these bands and you know either connected us with them but um uh, we certainly didn't feel part of a scene up in Newcastle because um, <laughs> there wasn't really a scene in New. There wasn't really a scene. I mean, you say you know there are venues. Yes, there are venues and places to play. But we were just playing to like you know you know three men and a dog. You know, in Newcastle for for most of most of our lives. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it was just that you know by the time your second album you came out, which was this is the one which is Tell God I'm Here, isn't it? Mm. Well, that was the first one that was a proper album that wasn't a singles album. So, so that came it came out in '87 or something like that. Yes, and the band. I mean, obviously, most bands I've spoke to, they have a sort of a bit of a five-year narrative of, you know, they get together, they have that twelve-month honeymoon, then they get the single John Peel session, and then the first album. Then, then by five years, they've kind of had it. But you're, you're sort of you've got kind of you've, you've got quite a bit of staying power with this this particular combo, haven't you? Um, uh, well, I guess so. I mean, I, I think we, we only lasted till, you know, 1990, but I mean, that was really just because, um, yeah, things start to change, you know, people's lives start to change and, um, yeah, bands, bands can probably go on for a long time, but, you know, they have, you know, peaks and troughs and stuff, but, um, we just, uh, decided to, to call it a day, really, because um, it was becoming a hard slog, you know, but um, still still good friends with uh, Taffy and Dave, though. So. Yes, because one of the, the, the sort of, I mentioned David Bowie, and I'd seen him during the Serious Moonlight tour, and then I saw him again on Glass, the Glass Spider tour in Berlin. Were you supporting Bowie on that particular tour on, in front of the Berlin Wall? Uh, no, we weren't, but I've seen that quoted in the press and that's where you've got it from. And no, I think the confusion might have come from uh, we might have been on the same festival as um, he was on part of that tour, I think. Right. Can you, in Europe. Wait, so did you play in front of the Reichstag on that particular tour? No, never been anywhere near the Reichstag, mate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I I just wish I had. Yes, I just remember that weekend, there was this celebration of Berlin that was, I think, 750 years old. And there was one evening there was Genesis, one evening there was David Bowie, and another evening there was Eurythmics. Eurythm I just wondered if they'd confused that and had got you down as one of those other ones. But um... No, I, th I think it was just that we, we did some festival that he was doing. It might have been around the same time and, you know, just... Mis misquoted down the years <laughs> yes well that's become yes well well there you go because i thought i can remember it was new model army was supporting him and i remember seeing them and thinking oh yes that's all 
quite of interested in, and everything. So when you came to sort of, you know, doing the last album, was this the beautiful one or Sound of Philadelphia? Uh, well, the beautiful was the one after, yeah. Um, but by then, um, uh, it, it it started to become uh, like the record company. People started to change, you know, different people came in and, um, I don't know, record companies suggesting producers that weren't really suitable. And that's where I think we just kind of started to um, realise that, you know, it wasn't really quite... Um, the game that we wanted to be in. I mean, we didn't really want to sign for a major um, for for those reasons, really. But um, at the same time, Kitchenware didn't really have the money to 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 keep us going, so we were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, really. Right, because the, the sign of Philadelphia is a sort of uh, a sort of a clear up of all the other bits and pieces of stuff you'd recorded, I guess. Yeah, that was just a a, a thing that was released. Um, probably in the 90s, I think, as a compilation. Yes, um, and I guess Cherry Records has also put out a compilation as well, haven't they? Yeah, that um, kind of um, demos and alternative versions, I think they are. I mean, to, to be honest with you, I, I never listened to anything that I've ever recorded, so I, I really have no um, <laughs> in-depth knowledge of what they sound like or what's on each album. After yes. they're recorded, I never listened to them. Um, but... But then you have gone, you know, when the band finished, did you have a period where you just stopped playing music altogether or did you just sort of become a solo artist for a while before? Oh, no, um, kind of during the 90s. I, I, I um, obviously didn't do much playing, but um, my, my mate Martin Stevenson from the Dainties, you know, he was, he was kind of um, just getting his solo thing started in the 90s and... Um, he used to ask me a long string for him. Um, and uh, so I'd, I did that uh, on and off for a few years. And um, watching Martin as a performer, he's like, you know, he's second to none, really. Um, and uh, I guess the idea of being a solo kind of artist or whatever you want to call it, um, it kind of be became... Um, more attractive, you know, see, seeing the likes of Martin do do his stuff. I'm 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 nowhere in his league as a, a solo artist, but um, um, I think it's it kind of was um, a big influence on me seeing seeing him do yeah. his stuff. Um, well, I always remember the album "Boat to Bolivia," which was a kind of a, a kind of classic from the '80s period, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, they they recorded some great albums and. Um, well, he's, he's still knocking them out today, you know. Yes, I can. Another one that's it's never never given up, actually. Um, um, yeah, I think it's a race between me and him, who out of the kitchenware artist, who, who's going to like stop recording first. <laughs> yes, which brings us to your your new album, which is titled "Is It um, Loveless Loveless Town?" To give it its full title. When did you start um, writing material for this? Um, well, um, as with all of my solo albums, um, I don't kind of record and I don't write and then record an album. I just have songs um, that I've written over the last, you know, 20 odd years that I just pick out and think, oh, I fancy doing this one and we'll do that. And there, there may be some newer songs in, in, in the album um, from the last couple of years, but um, all of this, the fourth solo album and yeah. all of those songs come from either last year two years ago 10 years ago or maybe uh, 20 years ago so I, I just kind of because when I write them it might not be the right time to do that song uh, stylistically or um, I haven't been able to play it well enough or get my get my chops right and so when the time's right I'll, I'll pull out that song so that's how I work yes because this is um, obviously, you know, I remember a few years, more well, decades ago, getting slowly into Americana, and this is obviously very sort of influenced. But when did your sort of love of the Americana sort of vibe start? Um, well, early on, um, I mentioned that I was a big Beatles fan when I was um, 13 or so, but um, I also was into Dylan, and 
through Dylan, I got into the band. I got that um, album, The Basement Tapes by Bob Dylan yes. and the band. Yes. And I, I thought that was fantastic. Um, and one of the, well, one of the first uh, sets of overdub recordings I used to do was of songs from the uh, basement tapes. I used to have two cassette players, as you did in those days. You'd record your guitar and vocals on one cassette, play it back, and then record your overdubs with the other cassette, and yes. then multi-track back and forwards. And uh, yeah, I, I did about half a dozen um, songs from the basement tapes. I used to love them. Um, I still do. So um, Americana was definitely um, in my in my ears, you know, the birds and kind of uh, the band and all of that 60s thing that I was I was hugely into that. So 60s American folk rock and rootsy music from from the 60s was was always uh, was always a big favorite. So so when I kind of came to Americana as a solo artist, I'd been writing those songs anyway. And I yeah. was always, you know, into that sound, so. Yeah, it's interesting. Yes, because I do remember sort of, is it The Big Pink as well was one of those classic albums. Yeah. And, and that whole work with, I suppose, Robbie Robinson as well. And and then seeing yeah. The Last Waltz was quite something. But I, I always feel that yeah. with, with Bob Dylan, it was Blood on the Tracks, which was the album that sort of, I suppose, made yeah, it. Yeah, I loved that. Yeah, that was the big one for me. That used that used to get played in the in the transit band on Hurrah on the roads um, blood on the tracks was was always on yeah yes that that was quite something but then coming coming forward a few decades there was bands like uncle tupella and um and is it jeff weedy jeff oh. tweedy tweedy, tweedy of Wilco. yes, yes. Yeah. and, then, and Wilco. those guys and then there was people like gillian welsh and stacy yeah. and alison christ so it was kind of that that was the kind of time when i started to become you know and laura cantrell God, yeah, Laura Cantrell. Um, that was when sort of I started to love country much more because when I grew up, I have to say my parents, they were into things like Boxcar Willie and Tammy Wynette and Crystal Girl, and yeah. you know some of it know. was a little bit hard. hard. So it's slightly yeah. put me off country. And then years later, you come back and you start listening to Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings, yeah. and and so I had been a little bit sort of traumatized by my experience. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> yes yeah, so with the yes yeah, so with this yes yeah, so i've been playing your new sing uh, new album today so i did sort of think yes the dylan connection it all makes sense now so there is a and does, is it the case that you just prefer being a completely solo artist in the sense of not needing to sort of rely on anyone else it's just practical i mean i, I say i'm a solo artist i mean um i wouldn't be anywhere without my guitarist rob Tickell, who um who plays guitar and slide and produces all my albums um he's my uh, uh right hand man and dave porthouse from hurrah he still plays with me um but he plays melodian now and double bass um so i mean it, it it's a it's a, a, a trio, um, but um, I'll often, um, you know, um, write really solo stuff, you know, just for, for one bloke and a guitar, but um, it's still nice having people around. Obviously, the last year has, <laughs> has been very different. Um, yeah. Quite literally, um, I haven't, haven't played with a single other person for 14 months now, so... I know I did an interview with Hank Wangford about last April and he was quite traumatised because I think he'd spent a well, period of time getting an album to be released just at the lockdown. And so it had that kind of feeling of like, oh, right, what do I do with it? And it was a bit unfortunate, yeah. you know, because obviously for some people they were spending this year recording or writing or certainly not not having the album and the tour sort of all lined up. So I think for a lot of people that's been a bit of a traumatizing experience so did you with with the release of this did you time it did you start to sort of think well there's no point trying to bring it out last year I might as well wait and wait a bit and just get it right no well um we were about 80 percent done on it just before lockdown last year and not knowing then obviously nobody knew how long it was going to go on for so you kind of waited a bit and thought well you know this you know we could be back to normal but obviously as the weeks and months went on, you realise, you no, know, this this could go on for a long time. So, um, 
we were literally me and Rob, him in his house down the road and me here um, recording stuff and exchanging files over the internet. And yeah, completely weird, you know, because I'd be sitting in here recording something and then send it to him and he'd say, yeah, that sounds all right, because he's the sound engineer, I'm not. And so we'd, we'd you know, send these files back and forward. Um, sounds completely unmusical to do it that way but luckily we were we were nearly finished all of the tracks we just had to you know add some back and vocals and keyboards and stuff stuff where we didn't have to be in the same room so um so uh, after that got that got completed and then mixing started um um last autumn but then we thought oh we're not going to get it done in time for christmas so we just took our time and uh, got it pressed in the new year, and and you know there was no there's been no hurry because there's no gigs, you know. So yeah, um, yeah. So that's and has your songwriting how much has that changed over the years and decades? You know, the process of you know putting a record together and sort of coming up with the sort of ideas and the melody. Um, I mean. Uh, uh, as I said, um, early nineties, I was I was watching Martin Stevenson work and um, kind of you know, just just the idea of one song, uh, one one guitar and one voice, and just the idea of how the the simpler things are sometimes the better. Um, and then, of course, my my, my tendencies are because I like the Beatles and stuff. I like to chuck the kitchen sink on top of it, but. Um, I got interested in uh, early 90s in folk music. I, I um, became agent for a, a traditional musician in Northumberland, um, Northumberland pipes player. Oh, is that Catherine Tickell? Uh, yeah. So I, I kind of got an education for about five years in folk music, which I, I knew nothing about. I knew nothing about English folk at all, uh, you know, except knowing Steel Eyes Band from Top of the Pops, you know, that that was it. Yeah. Uh, so I've got, I've got a very quick um, education in folk music, which um, kind of tied in with my uh, like of people like Tom Waits and Randy Newman, because um, although they were American, their songs you could hear, they were either connected to church music and you know, UK church music, which is also connected to some folk music from the UK. So I, I could see similarities in some folk stuff and also um, American folk stuff, what you call Americana, and, and how the two were connected, you know, how, you know, obviously um, American music was a, a, a melting pot of uh, Afro-American music and UK folk music. And so... I, I kind of like that connection. So, um, yeah, it, it did influence my songwriting because um, I started to learn piano, I think, as well. I had an, an old piano, so I would, <laughs> which was out of tune, and immediately you sound like Tom Waits as soon as you play a chord. And, yes. and kind of that, that influence of folk and listening to, to, to him and, and Randy Newman. Um, yeah, so I, I think I've probably... I made that change probably early nineties and 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 that style of writing I guess is is what I like doing. I I try and write um English folk songs in the idiom if I can, which is a really hard thing to do. Um and most of my albums have a, an English folk song on them. Um and the rest is kind of somewhere in the mid-Atlantic, you know. Yes, well absolutely. It's kind of interesting because I've seen Catherine Tekel quite a few times. And she is quite mesmerising her her sort of playing. And I remember she used to be with a fiddle player called Tom Mac something, which I can't now remember. McConville. That's the McConville. That was kind of those were mesmerising moments. But I do remember that also, you know, with the eighties, there was Tom Waits did an amazing album called which had in the neighbourhood and um, yeah. Oh God, is it? Um, yeah, what was the other one? In the Neighbourhood and I can't remember what the... Tom F um, something Tron, Swordfish Trombone was the album. Yeah, yeah. That was a classic. And then Randy Newman did an amazing song called Baltimore. So when you're yeah. 
starting to, you know, like develop your solo career, have you enjoyed trying to sort of create these kind of narratives and stories and sort of communities? I mean, because I noticed with a lot of your solo work, it, it sort of comes down to sort of kind of a specific kind of reference point, a bit like a Bruce Springsteen song, I suppose. Uh, do you mean specifically on... on? Yeah, but I, I was just, you know, with the album Wayward Son, there was particular songs oh. which kind of conjured up certain images that also reminded me of the Bruce Springsteen album, Nebraska, and, and sort of... I just, oh, right. If you were trying to sort of... You were also sort of influenced by those kind of, um, yeah, artists and sort of getting into different characters. Um, not, not consciously, no. Um, but, but as I say, if... Um, you sit down at a piano and <laughs> you play a chord and it, it puts you in a Tom Waits kind of area. You then have to kind of follow that the same way you pick up a, a certain acoustic guitar tuned to an open tuning and it, it has that, um, you know, makes you sound like Martin Carthy or some, you know, folk player, you know. So, um, and, and the same way back in the day, if I'd strap on the 12 string Rickenbacker, then I would you know, want to chime along with Roger McGuinn, you know, so. Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it, it kind of depends on what instrument or what what you're you're into that day, you know. Yeah, no, it's, it's always kind of curious, because I know with certain songwriters that I've listened, uh, spoken to, as we, you know, as you get with age, you know, with, with the aging process, you, you know, there's different emotions that we start to go through and different experiences so obviously it's going to as a for an artist it would start to sort of give you a different sort of inspiration of what you want to talk about which is often a bit a little bit more sort of humbling than when you're sort of a younger person where we're sort of almost indestructible and and then you start to I don't know lament the passing of time or oh uh, absolutely uh, but then you've also got to watch yourself that that's uh, not all you do because um uh, I don't know. I don't. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't want to feel as like you know this old Grinch, you know, saying you know, oh, things were better back in my day, kind of thing. But um, yeah, you you do. Um, unfortunately, the older you get, the the glass definitely starts to become half full and not as half empty and not half full. You know, things are things are going um, only one way from now. You know, so um, you've got to make sure that your songwriting still. Uh, is able to engage um, younger people. You can't just be talking to to your own peer group. So um, sometimes I, I do that, but I'm, I'm conscious of um, of not um, always having the same kind of um, uh, viewpoint on a song. Hence, hence I like the idea of writing a, a folk song where it's in a third person rather than me, and that's easier to do. I find in folk music to to do it from a third person point of view i'd find it harder in a in in modern contemporary songwriting to do that i don't know why but i just do yeah well that, you know i do remember it was steve earl's son i think his name's justin justin towns yeah just died he just died didn't he it was really sad but he i remember him talking about songwriting he said you can't you can't make you can't do diary entry songs you have to sort of they can't just be diary entries you have to sort of really work them and sort of otherwise you're just going to be reading your diaries out so I can see as a songwriter and I suppose what he was trying to go get at was that you know when he did a song called Daddy's Eyes you know he you know, he didn't want to just sort of talk about his unfortunate friendship or not relationship with his own dad Steve yeah. he he needed to sort of make it a bit more otherwise it was just going to be a rather corny story so I just wondered how much of that plays into your songwriting knowing that you can't just go oh I'm a bit old I'm a bit older now isn't this all about exactly I mean I heard that song just recently actually I, I was a big fan of his um, was um, gutted when um, I heard what happened to him but um, yeah I th yeah um, exactly you can't just say you know I'm really pissed off because obviously the last year I mean I think um, when lockdown started in March I think um, yeah you know I tried to write you know, one or two songs a month and, you know, complete them. That's the hardest thing is finish them. I always start loads. But um, as the year went on, I found it, uh, I found it really hard to write new songs because 
my <laughs> my, my experiences are, are becoming so you know as as we all have so limited yeah and um uh, i i wonder there are any songwriters out there that have really flourished over the last year of, of isolation maybe there have been I, I envy them i thought when lockdown started i thought oh i'm gonna write uh, a couple of albums here in this next six months but um after about a month or two i found it really hard well i have to say i've, I've done a lot of interviews over the last year mainly because people have been haven't been, have been available and actually most, pe most people have just said it's been really hideous it's like they've gone look I've, I've got a guitar over there I haven't touched it for six months and I need to get it out soon because I just can't you know I mean the enthusiasm has really hit and I can tell some people are really trying to you know you know even people like Alanis Morissette I remember hearing her talking I think she was just really I think everyone's just really struggled because it's like their career, their industry, you know, and having that deadline of thinking I've got to finish it, not just keep starting projects and then not really having the edge. So I think it must be yeah. really, really difficult and not being able to play live and just get that response from an audience and getting a little bit of, you know, I suppose sometimes just, you know, even being annoyed can be a good emotion rather than just being, I'm not that bothered. You know, that's even the worst. Sure. I, I, I managed to okay um, through last summer, actually, um, I did a load of demos um, of new songs and old songs, and I did about, about a dozen, which would, <laughs> I was thinking last year, I was thinking, no, this will be for the next album, you know, while we were still mixing um, the current one. And I was, I'd already done, you know, a whole album worth of, of, of demos. Um, but after I did that, <laughs> it just it just kind of like you know nosedived and then um you get involved in with the current album mixing it and mastering it and the artwork and and then you know like the pr stuff sending out stuff so you start to put a different hat on you stop being the musician and you start becoming the the label uh, boss you know trying to organize practicalities of releasing something yeah. so that's that's taken over i guess um in the last few months um but i don't know what the hell i'm going to do once this is released and there are no gigs <laughs> you know I'm, I'm hoping things get back to normal fairly soon yes that does sound quite i mean is it a kind of a balancing act though emotionally as well as financially keeping you know the the sort of solo project going uh, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah big fun but big balancing act um i mean yeah, it's 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 been um, tough, but um, I don't know. We'll just have to see what happens in the next few months. You know whether um, things things change, but yeah, I'm certainly not getting rich. It, it's 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 a very expensive hobby. I think that's the way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. No, this is true. And if you, I mean, it kind of you know, just lastly, I mean, if you if you could have said some you know, a bit of advice or wisdom to, a, you, say, your 16-year-old self starting out. I mean, is there something that you could have just, you would have thought, yeah, I would have just whispered that into their ear, even if they ignored it, just because it's like something that you've learned from, you know, taking this path in life? Yeah, absolutely. Don't waste time. Don't fuck about. Um, don't, um, don't take time for granted because it will run out before you, you know it. That's good yeah. advice. That is good, yeah. yes. Did you feel that, is that to do with just all of life or with that particular, your early, you know, creative moment with Hurrah? Um, all of it, um, both musically and just life, but um, specifically musically, um, um, I guess um, there were a lot of times where I did not um, make uh, the best use of uh, any any skills musical skills i had um took it easy was lazy you know um distracted by <laughs> distractions and um yeah that's what i would uh, i would i would say to, to somebody who was younger is um don't take it for granted and don't waste time yes but the good thing is you know on that on that point is that you know watching people like you know like i mentioned david bowie he, even when he got to sort of his kind of 69 he was still doing his kind of some of his best work ever. So, you know, I mean, he does, people like that always gives us hope that there is that potential of, oh, yeah. you know, the next album or the next album, you know, so there are those artists who are still like, wow, that's, 
that is just an amazing piece of work that you managed uh, to do. Well, he, he was a, he was a one-off, wasn't he? Really, I mean, um, yeah, <laughs> unbelievable what he did in his lifetime. <laughs> just crazy. Yes, I, I sort of realised in the 70s he did one album a year plus several major tours and relocated several times. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, I know. And produced two other, you know, like Iggy Pop and Lou Reed. So I did sort of think, yeah. mm, oh, and did several films. So there you go. He wasn't lazy in the 70s, was he? He kind of. No, that was probably the cocaine, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he didn't. He, he made decisions quick and went through them, didn't he, and moved on. I think a lot of people say, you know, I suppose a few people have said, you know, just get your project done and then get to the next one. Don't get stuck on a project for too long because, you know, you need to you need to be moving to the next one. Do you ever sort of feel like that sometimes with with a sort of a piece of work? Yes, I'm desperate. Uh, I, I get bored very easily. I want things desperately to be finished and on to the next thing. Um, if this wasn't going, if the um, the lockdown wasn't going on, um, I'd be hopefully already nearly finished the next album. Um, um, yeah, because I, I, I've probably got another, well, another couple albums ready ready to be, re, be recorded, but um, because the recording process is slow, so slow, um, because my guitarist Rob, he needs to work, I need to work, fitting in time, um, things take a long time, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's so I would, I would. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this, Paul. This has been brilliant. And if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always use it wherever. And and also, you know, thanks for sending through the album, which I, I sort of been playing today. So that's been fantastic. So, You're yeah, welcome. I've loved it. And yes, Bob Dylan. Yes, that's the one, isn't it? I sort of thought, yes, this sounds, you know, has a certain vibe. So, um, yes, there you go. But yes, Paul, thank you again for this. This has been brilliant. And, um, you know, best of luck for the future. Welcome, thanks, David. And uh, if uh, we're doing a gig in your area, come yes. and say hi. God, I will. I, you know, I'm definitely. To be honest, God, Where, whereabouts are you? Norwich. In Norwich. In Norwich. Yeah. 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 Well, I know Martin's played quite a few times in Norwich, and even Catherine's been in Norwich quite a few times. So hopefully. I'm sort of have to say I'm just so desperate to go to some live concerts. It's. <laughs> it would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That would be nice. Anyway, look, take care of yourself and thanks again. You're welcome. See you later. Good luck. Bye-bye. Cheers, Bye. Dave. Cheers. And that is how you say goodbye in a very concise way. Or not. Anyway, I'd love to leave that bit in. That was me in conversation with Paul Handyside, one-time member of Hurrah. You probably gathered that. And also has got this um, solo material album just out, plus other albums as well. So you can find all those if you just go to Paul Handyside. Dot com. It's all there. Order it now. It might just change your life. It's brilliant. And um, anyway, look, this has been, yeah, I probably said this, David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, um, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. I've got quite a lot of um, interviews with people from the 80s, especially indie pop, as well as David Bowie. So check it out. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.